Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. This episode goes live on the uh, Christmas day. So I hope you're enjoying your holiday week, holiday weekend. I hope you're surrounded by people you love if you're celebrating Christmas and you have a good holiday season. First, I wanted to start the show by uh, giving a shout out to a few of our wonderful listeners who wrote us great reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much, DS928, Indie Listener 317, and Devin the Bookman. Your reviews are very, very helpful for me because it gives me encouragement and also gives me information about what you like and what don't you like. So if you're a long-term listener of this show and you would like to give us some feedback, please go to iTunes or Stitchers and write us an honest review. Today, uh, we're going to talk about women's sexuality and mostly around how to cultivate more sexual desire for in women. I think that's one of the main challenges that I see in my sex therapy practice. And I am so excited to have Dr. Lori Petito on our show today. Dr. Lori is a clinical psychologist with a specialty in sex therapy and has been a practicing psychotherapist for close to 30 years. For the last 27 years, she has been doing radio and television, dispensing sex and relationship advice. She is a regular contributor to various magazines, newspaper, and television shows. She is the host of nightly Canadian syndicated call, call-in show called Passion, where she discusses issues related to sexuality with her listeners. Dr. Lori is also president of the Sexual Health Network of Quebec and past president of the Canadian Sex Research Forum. Dr. Lori is the author of the Sex Bible, for people over 50, and she is also the director of the Pornhub Sexual Wellness Center, an online sexual health information platform. She has also done two TEDx talks on the subject of sexuality. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Lori Petito. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so honored and excited to have Dr. Lori Petito on our show. Dr. Lori, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. As is, as I was sharing with our listeners and and with you before the recording, I'm at all of the accomplishments <laughs> and great things that you have done. Seems like you have a long, you had a long career, and you have a long career in the area of sex therapy. Specifically, it's so interesting that you're a director of the Pornhub Sexual Wellness Center. I didn't know they have a sexual education. Yes, we started that about uh, two years ago. So I've been in uh, the field for over 30 years and I've been involved in the media almost since the beginning of my career where I've been doing a radio program every single night for Montreal and Canadian listeners. And I wanted to find a way to reach more people. And Pornhub was looking for a new project because a lot of people don't know this, but Pornhub is involved in community initiatives 
around the world. And uh, so we were brought together and we created this project to be able to offer viewers of Pornhub. So it was for people who are already on the porn site, but to offer them an, a place where they could get quality sexual health information from professionals. So kind of like a balancing out of what they learn from porn and the reality of sex. Love that because I'm not against porn as our listeners, they know, but I feel it's like fiction. <laughs> I always, yeah. Well, it's fiction. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's, it can be very exciting, but it isn't how people do sex in the real life. It's, it's very much like watching a movie that's all about car chases and thinking that that's how you're supposed to drive. Love that analogy, yes. And what a good place to reach people because I feel, yes, there are different sex education like websites online, but Pornhub, if that, that's a place that people go watch pornography, it's great to reach them at the same place so they know if they, exactly. yeah, if they need the support, where to go. That, that's awesome. I think that's a great project. And I, now I have more respect for Pornhub that they're doing community <laughs> initiative. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people don't be, uh, well, also we didn't, it, it wasn't publicized so generally because it wasn't meant as a marketing thing to bring people to Pornhub. It really was meant as a, an offsite for people who already are going there. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but there are a hundred million visits a day mm-hmm. to Pornhub from around the world. So I couldn't think of a better place to reach out to people who often don't have access to uh, sexual health information. I mean, in in North America, it's pretty accessible, but there are many places where it is not. And um, and I and I get a lot of questions from all around the world. So I know that sex education is is sorely lacking in in many areas of our of our world. Absolutely. And again, how great that, again, with Pornhub, I know I work with like some international clients doing video counseling and I know that's Pornhub pretty much popular everywhere. Yes. So that's good that they offer that part of like sexual education. Is it like questions that they submit or it's like educational videos? What is the form of the psychoeducation? Well, we have all of that actually. So I have a a whole roster of contributors and all our contributors are either sex educators, our doctors, our sex researchers, neuroscientists, uh, everybody who's in the field who can offer a kind of a scientific based like information, if you will. So we write about everything. So I try to get experts in, in all different areas, whether it be BDSM, whether it's uh, uh, disabled, like sexuality Mm -hmm. for the disabled, uh, whether it's LGBTQ. So I get people contributing uh, blog posts. So we get, you know, we have a whole, we have probably hundreds by now of articles on the site. Plus there's an area where people can ask questions and then I answer a few questions a week on the site as well. And then we have some places where there are videos that are educational videos on there as well. Excellent. Um, so I, I personally have to go 
<laughs> check it out and look into it because it sounds interesting. But I welcome you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. So the other reason, I mean, the main reason that I invited you here, I watched your TEDx talk about female sexuality and I, and I loved it and I thought it was very interesting. And I get tons of questions about challenges that many women have when it comes to their kind of sexual desire, like uh, sexual challenges that they have. So I want us to kind of talk more about that. One of the main things that I see is that women coming into my practice or my friends or my colleague talking about how they lose their sexual desire. So at they talk about how at one point they were feeling more desire and their desire drops. Tell us what are some of the factors that may lead a woman to lose her sexual desire? I think it's a, this is a very important question because it requires a bit of a reframing of the way we see desire. Often when women say they've lost their sexual desire, they're talking about losing the hunger for sex, but not the interest in sex. So they, they still are interested in sex. They still want to want to. They still experience pleasure in sex, but they've lost this spontaneous drive for sex, which let's call it the, the hunger for sex. So if they're not hungry, they're not seeking out food, right? It, it would be a logical kind of thing. But it doesn't mean they're not interested in it. What happens to a lot of women especially women in long-term relationships, is that they lose that hunger, but they don't lose the responsiveness. In other words, if you ask these same women, well, what happens when you do have sex? They often respond with, oh, I enjoy it. I, you know, once I get into it, it's fun, it's good. So if we reframe and look at desire, not as spontaneous, but as responsive, so they have responsive desire, meaning that once they get stimulated and their bodies respond, they're now engaged in the process and their desire kind of kicks in at that point. So it's a question of understanding how our desire can be triggered and putting ourselves in the situation to allow that to happen. If you wait around for the hunger to take over, you may be waiting a long time. You have to stimulate the appetite. I think that is very accurate because as you said, these are not women that I, I say like they have like they're asexual, they don't want to enjoy sex, they don't enjoy sex. These are the women, as you said, that they kind of lose that, like they don't find, as you said, the hunger to initiate and they want to kind of revive that. What are some of the reasons that the hunger might fade away? I'm kind of curious about that. I really think for most of us, it is... A biological thing. I don't, uh, you know, for some people, there are, are real reasons. Like I know that I, I will work with women and they, they will, uh, you know, once I start investigating a little deeper into uh, what's going on in their relationship, I will hear things like, I don't get enough help from my partner. I have resentment towards my partner for certain things. There may be some trouble in the relationship, but not always. Obviously, when they are feeling resentment, they are not going to be in a position to want to have sex. So I often tell women, like, if you're to have sex with your partner, you need to have warmth in your heart. If you're feeling a lot of cold towards your partner for whatever reason, that isn't going to stimulate any kind of desire 
even to choose to have sex, even if the hunger isn't there. So resentments, stress is a big factor for women. At the beginning of a relationship, there's often less stress because you're, it's much more exciting. You're not involved in the day-to-day things with your partner. But once you get married or once you move in and, and you're dealing with day-to-day stressors, that kind of takes over. And I think women have a harder time generally separating everything compartmentalizing, if you will, like all the stressors, like putting those aside and focusing on the body. So their preoccupations kind of take over and they are less, it's more difficult for them to just feel and just be in their bodies to experience the pleasure. So there are many factors that can, that affect women's desire, but sometimes simply being in a long-term relationship is the factor. It's like the initial phase of excitement kind of dissipates over time. We just know this about the majority of women, whereas men, their desire has been shown to kind of be steady throughout the lifespan. And from what I'm hearing about the responsive model of desire, it doesn't mean that we have to revive the uh, hunger. We shouldn't necessarily have revived the desire in order to have good sex. Right. Is that what you notice? So it's, if people are kind of having kind of this, like they're they're kind of more responsive to kind of desire versus having that kind of initial kind of spark and hunger, what, how can, what can they do to improve their sex life? Well, what they can do is learn what they need to stimulate that hunger. So if uh, it's about making the choice to engage in sexual activity, knowing that there are benefits to it and knowing that their appetite or their desire will be stimulated once their bodies are stimulated. So it really is about knowing that. I make the analogy about going to the gym. Most of us, there are some people who love going to the gym and that would be a smaller percentage, but most of us know that going to the gym is good for us. We know why we go, right? We go because we will feel better, we will look better and all of that. So we have good reasons to go, but getting there is often difficult. Like when your alarm goes off early, early in the morning because you have to go work out, you don't necessarily feel like going, but you've committed yourself. You've made the choice to go because of all the benefits. Once you're there, you're not going back home. You're going to go on with your workout and you're going to feel really good afterwards. So it's a little bit like sex. Once you get there, you will want to continue and it will feel good. And then you'll tell yourself, wow, this was, this was great. I should do this more often, except that the cycle starts all over again. So it's a question of motivating us or committing to it, uh, knowing that there are all these benefits attached to it. This is so funny. One of my clients uh, was telling me, I wish I could get a tattoo on my wife's hand, reminding her that sex was great. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Because she's enjoying it while we're having it. But then after that, she kind of like, you know, it seems like it drops in the priority kind of list. One of the challenges I hear from female, like women that I see, is that they're saying that they're kind of scared to kind of go with this kind of responsive model Because they're scared, what if I'm not in the mood? What if I don't want to have sex? And I don't, like when we start kind of making love and doing foreplay, they kind of, they don't want to reject their partner. What is your recommendation around that? 
Well, in a situation like that, first of all, I tell women, give yourself a couple of minutes. First of all, prepare yourself ahead of time. So if you know sex is going to happen, do what it takes to relax. So maybe you want to meditate for a few minutes before. Maybe you want to take a hot bath. Maybe you want to have a glass of wine. Anything that generally relaxes your mind is what you should do before entering the bedroom. Then give yourself a few minutes of stimulation, like let your partner stimulate you for a few minutes before you say, no, I'm not in the mood and see if that kicks it off. If it doesn't, which could happen, of course, then you can always reach some kind of other agreement with your partner where you tell your partner, look, I'm not really in the mood, but I'm happy if you masturbate next to me or, or maybe I can do this for you. So you're not completely rejecting your partner. It's not about your partner. It's about you. Because often what happens is when we do this, when we say no, our partners will often take it very personally. Like, what's wrong with me? Why why aren't you attracted to me? And it really is not about that. Right. And I think the fear of what if I don't want to have sex after we start, that kind of caused many people to not kind of give it a chance. And the other common thing that I see is that like people are not doing enough foreplay. Oh. They kind of have this expectation that I have to be on like right away. Oh, and then that is so wrong because women absolutely need foreplay. And as they get older, they need more foreplay because as um, we know, at least in our field, that clitoral stimulation is necessary one way or the other. And this is what women need. And so for many, many women, it's not about the intercourse. It really is about the other forms of stimulation, whether it be oral sex or with uh, with your hand or what have you, where there could be some direct clitoral stimulation. And so women need to feel prepared. Like you, you have to start, if foreplay is necessary to, uh, to whet the appetite, I, I often say it's like a, a dimmer switch. You know, men might have a switch that's on off, so it, it can easily go on, but women have a dimmer, which means that you, it, it has to slowly get to the point of completely lighting up. Right. And, and I think foreplay can start from the morning. <laughs> Absolutely. That's another, yeah. another form of foreplay is we need to let our partners know what we need. So when you're kind to me and sweet to me and you do nice things and you connect with me throughout the day, that makes me feel warm towards you. So it, I always say, remember, it's about warming the heart of your partner if you want them to be open to you. I really like that. And I, I think some of my female clients, and, and I'm just generalizing, obviously, but they're telling me that like they kind of expect their partner to know these things. But if we want people to do mind reading for us, we might not get uh, what we want. So in my experience is when we verbalizing our needs, usually people get good experiences from kind of like their partner reciprocating that. Exactly. And, and as you know, as, as therapists, we, we facilitate a conversation regarding sex. Sexuality is not an easy subject to tackle uh, for the for most of us. And having a good sexual communication with compassion and understanding and empathy and an openness and non judgmental attitude, all of that is really helpful to a, a much better sex life. Yes, and I think it's something like people. Most people they don't learn it at during their childhood, right. from during the teenage years. So it's a matter of practice. The more it, practice you do, the better it gets. 
Exactly. And we don't, you're absolutely right. We don't learn it. We barely talk about sexuality. We barely get it in school. We, parents are often reluctant to talk openly about sexuality to their children. There's a lot of fears around it, right? There's a lot of fears that if we talk to young people about sex, it's somehow encouraging them to go out and do it or try it, which of course, that's not what the studies are showing. The studies are very clear about that, that the more parents talk to their children about sexuality, the more likely they, the kids are, are likely to uh, delay their sexual activity and are more likely to protect themselves when they do engage in sex. So all the studies are very clear about the benefits of sex education, whether it be from the parents or in, in school. And studies also show that, that children want their parents to talk to them about sexuality, even though we may get the impression that they don't. But if you start like at 15 to, to begin talking about it, at that point, your kids are going to say like, ah, don't talk to me. You know, <laughs> uh, I already know it all. But you got to start very young. <laughs> that is so true. And I think it's just a kind of generational challenge that people have that their parents haven't talked to them. So now they're very uncomfortable talking about sexuality. And you're right. I feel the younger you start, it's easier to build uh, upon that yes. conversation. Yes. Exactly. Versus you're kind of having this challenging conversation. Go ahead. Exactly. And, and I think parents often ask me, you know, at what age do we start talking about sex? And I said, right away. You start with, it's a, it's a scaffolding kind of way to do it where it's one thing on top of another. So you're creating the, you're creating the layers, the bricks, if you will, to until, you know, all the information is had. But when you start young, you're, you're just, you're not talking about sex. You're talking about sexuality, which is a little bit different because little like babies start to learn about uh, their bodies and, and we play games with them. Like you touch your nose, what's this and what's that? And oftentimes we completely ignore the genitals, right? We'll talk about, hey, what's that's your elbow, but we'll never say that's your penis or that's your scrotum or that's your vulva or whatever it is. So that's like an, an implicit message that those are areas we shouldn't talk about. Right. But kids don't know that. For children, it's part of their body. They don't know the difference between a penis and an elbow. <laughs> a body part is a body part, right? That is so true. And I feel it's just like, it's so important to give the education to the children about even just starting, as you said, with naming the body parts mm -hmm. so they can kind of like know that there's nothing shameful about it. I have clients, like parents that are kind of like, they're uncomfortable even naming, like giving the kid the name of the part. So exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's, and unfortunately that does have an impact on later sexual health. So if you look at people who have sex, sexual problems and you ask them about their early upbringing or early messages about sex, oftentimes either they got nothing, uh, so the message was it's something you don't talk about, or they got negative, right, where uh, parents kind of shamed them into if they expressed any form of sexuality. And we carry that with us into our adulthood. And that is so much harder to get rid of. The, the longer we wait <laughs> yes. to explore things, the harder it, it becomes for people to kind of get rid of this sense of shame around sexuality and all the negativity. So sexual desire is one of the main the challenge that I see in many of my female clients. But what are some of other challenges that you see that women are struggling in your sex therapy practice? In terms of sexuality, like I do see that that is the most common. So the, the sexual desire, 
uh, issue or questioning about it, not knowing if they're normal or not, but oftentimes they are perfectly fall within the normal range and they're quite relieved to find out that every most other women feel the same way. But sometimes I, I will see women who experience uh, painful, painful sex and they don't quite know where it's coming from, which is harder to diagnose because gynecologists and, and doctors who examine them see nothing. So they don't know what to make of this pain. And lot, they'll often tell women, oh, it's in your head, when really there is some kind of uh, pain is real. It's not just in somebody's head, just because you can't see it. You don't see a lesion doesn't mean there isn't something there. So women struggling with this is, uh, is something that, uh, that I do see pretty regularly. I see a lot of men in my practice too, who, uh, with all kinds of, uh, all kinds of issues. So there's quite a, a, a variety of, uh, of different problems, but I'd have to say the majority of women, it is about their desire and often relationship issues they come to the table with too. And it's interesting that you're telling me about the sexual desire piece, at least my understanding is that at times it's changing our outlook and perspective toward this issue versus and this is an issue we're fixing it. So I I love that the responsive model is more kind of uh, well understood uh, these days. Yes. But back into the painful sex thing, it's interesting that reminds me of other issue, other problem that I see is that some women, as it's known, they fake orgasm. Mm -hmm. And I think at times it could be related to the, at least I see that sometimes could be number of, number of reasons could be related to number of reasons. But one of them is sex is painful. They just want to get it over with and they fake it. Right. Or it's, you know, they, they never had an orgasm. They just feeling shameful about it. So they fake it. So what are some of other reasons that you notice that in your practice that you, you hear from women that they're faking orgasm? Uh, one of the main reasons that I believe women fake is because they're protecting the ego of their partner. So they don't want to make their partner feel badly because they know Oftentimes they feel that uh, their partner's pleasure is tied into their own and they know that or their, their partner is evaluating their own performance based on whether they give their partner an orgasm or not. So there's a bit of a pressure there to, to kind of stroke the ego of their partner. So they, they may fake it for that reason. Of course, many uh, women fake it to get it over with for whatever reason, whether it's just simply because they change their mind, they no longer want to be there, or maybe it, sex is taking too long, or or maybe they're experiencing some pain. I just find it sad that women feel the need to fake it, and I, I just don't think that you resolve anything by faking it. So if you keep experiencing pain and you keep keep faking it, your partner has no clue what's going on. And it will be quite a surprise to them when you finally tell, say like, no, I don't want to do this. It hurts. And they're like, I don't understand. Why does it suddenly hurt? And then you tell them, well, it's always hurt. They're going to be quite upset that you didn't actually share that information ahead of time. So it doesn't help us to pretend and to fake because it stops us actually from actually communicating what is going on sexually and stops us from, from, from fixing the problem. That is so true. And the more we kind of validate our partner with giving them wrong information, oh, I love it, I'm reaching orgasm this way, 
the, the problem gets bigger. Yes. Because we tell them to do more of the thing that's not working for us. That's right. They're going to keep doing what they are perceiving to be to, that, that you're enjoying. They'll just keep doing more of the same. If you don't tell them, look, I need this or this is I need more of this or what have you, then um, your partner's not going to read your mind. There's no question. And it goes back to what we were saying about uh, communication regarding sexuality, I think. A lot of people will fake it because they have trouble communicating to their partner their needs and, and just having that discussion. And I understand maybe like if if some people like fake it, like I throw out their sexual history once or twice, that's not a biggest deal. Right. But if this is a repeated pattern and someone want to change it, what would be the first step that you encourage her to do? The first step is to, to start discussing sexuality, to start talking about what the needs are. Like these are, this is what I need. And all we all need something different. We all have different uh, ways of, or, or different things we like in terms of stimulation. We may all have different erogenous zones and those may change over the years too. So important to just keep those lines of communication open and not being afraid to say, I like it when you touch me this way, or I would prefer to be touched that way. And, and being able to ask one's partner as well, how do you like to be touched? What works best for you? So being able to talk about your needs is, uh, is crucial. And I think that's very important as well. And I, I want women to know they're not broken. No. <laughs> because what happens, <laughs> yeah, I hear it all the time in my practice. I'm broken and this is something I never had orgasm. And what if I'm not able to reach orgasm ever? And it hasn't never been my experience that like when people problem solve around that, that the issue doesn't get resolved. Right. And I, I want to say one thing, like you asked me about what some of the common things. One of them is definitely women who come in uh, telling me that they have not had orgasms. And that that's quite true. Oftentimes women come in saying, I have a problem with orgasm. I'm broken because I do not orgasm with intercourse. And they are surprised to hear that 75% of women do not orgasm with intercourse, actually, that they do need that clitoral stimulation. So somewhere along the line, because of this lack of education, we're led to believe that sex is all about intercourse and that if you're not experiencing the ultimate pleasure through intercourse, there must be something wrong with you. And it's not just women who believe that. A lot of men believe that as well. So we need to make that very clear, that women need that clitoral stimulation in order to, to reach orgasm. And that, that's, that's quite important. The other part of that when I see women is I try to examine women's expectations. So women will come in saying, I don't have an orgasm. And I say, well, how do you know you don't have an orgasm? And they say, because it, I'm not seeing fireworks or it's not as intense as I see in porn, for example, or I think I would know if I had one. And when I ask them to describe what actually happens during arousal and such, oftentimes they are describing an orgasm. They are describing uh, a muscle tension and a sense of release. It's just not as intense as they think it should be. And so they question their own ability to have that orgasm. I don't know if that makes sense, but... No, it does. I think it's so important because I feel part of like... Uh, my work with clients is just like exploring, as you said, that what are some of the myths that they believe in and what is the, 
what is real sex look like? Because it, it is a range of different kind of like experiences. Sometimes orgasm could be amazing and like fireworks. Sometimes it could be like a, like a sneeze. small kind of yeah. Yeah, sneeze. <laughs> and doesn't mean that, that that was an orgasm. And I think it's so important for, as you said, for men and women to adjust their expectation. Yes. And at times not necessarily personalize their partner's challenge with sex. Because I think that adds, yeah, issue. And they're, they have to be responsible for their own orgasm. It's not about, it's not their partner's responsibility to give them an orgasm. They have to be able to let their partners know what they need in order to get there. Because like you said, like the, nobody is, is a mind reader. And sometimes our partners need the direction. Yes, yes. And I think that's why I encourage women to do the self-assimilation, masturbation, because that teach them to kind of explore what they like. And and I know for some people, it's not related to the kind of experience they will have with their partner sex, but at times could be preparation for learning about your body and having a better partner sex. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's one good technique to teach women to to be able to do some of that self-exploration and, and even to get rid of their own shame, like get in touch with your body. A lot of women don't know their bodies, have, don't even look at their genitals, have never even seen close up what their genitals look like. And and that's, I noticed that every time I, I kind of give a talk uh, to a lot of women, I'll often ask them, like, how many of you would be able to pick out your vulvas out of a lineup. Like if we line them all up, would you be able to pick out yours? <laughs> and funny. most most people say, absolutely not. But if you ask men, how many of you could pick out your own penises? They all say, absolutely, I could pick mine out. So there is something, like we still have some some shame attached to female sexuality, which hopefully we'll get rid of soon. Uh, it's getting better through education and such and through uh, women's sexuality or women being a, a little more empowered to explore their own sexuality and getting rid of the double standard a little bit too, that, you know, women shouldn't like sex and that only men are allowed to, to love sex. And if men, um, it's okay for men to have multiple partners, but somehow it's not okay for women. So once we get rid of that double standard, I think women will feel uh, much more empowered in their own sexuality as well. Oh, uh, I, I am very passionate about this <laughs> topic and I love mm-hmm. all the information that you're sharing with us. But I noticed we're to, uh, toward the end of our time and I know you have great resources. You publish this wonderful book. So I want to make sure our listeners, they know about the great content that you have and you. Uh, where to access that. Okay, so if you just go to my website, which is drlaurie.com, D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E.com, there you'll have information about my book, which is The Sex Bible for People Over 50. So that's a a resource book for people who are aging and learning about uh, the aging process sexually, and it offers all kinds of solutions for all kinds of problems that can happen as we age. And as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, I, I have done two Uh, TEDx talks, one on uh, passion and long-term relationships and one about female sexuality, which are also available either on YouTube. So I've got a YouTube channel, which is uh, Dr. Lori Batito, and or it can be accessed through through my website as well. And if people want to go to the sex education site on Pornhub, 
they can uh, they can go to pornhub.com slash sex and they will be directly to the site with no bypassing all the, the nudity and, and, and the pornography, actually. Okay, great. And I'll make sure I leave a link to those websites on my show notes. And Dr. Lori, thank you so much for sharing your experience and knowledge with us. And it was lovely to have you here. Well, thank you so much. It was quite a pleasure to be with you. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Lori. I want to uh, reiterate the fact that uh, we were talking about no matter what kind of sexual struggle you have, there is a solution out there. I think many of the misconceptions we have around our sexuality comes from not being aware of the resources. Obviously, not having good sexual education is part of it too, but there are tons of great resources out there that can help you change your relationship with your sexuality and uh, resolve the struggles that you have. You can always go to a sex therapist if you are living in California or internationally. I would be happy to help you if if you feel my style resonate with you. You can give me a call at 310-600-9912. Also, if you're curious to learn more about psychology of uh, food, sex, and drug, uh, you can check out my private practice website at oasis2care.com where I post weekly blog post on this topic. So that could be another source for you guys to get more accurate information about this area. As always, thank you so much for uh, tuning in to this show and I wish you have a good holiday season and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.